Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 as we return once again to this terrific section of Scripture known as the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. These are, as we've been saying, foundational, the Beatitudes are, for the whole sermon that Jesus is preaching, and they're foundational to His message of the gospel. They establish a foundation of how we understand a Christian, how we discern a believer, a true follower of Christ. Because we all know there are many who would claim to be Christians. There are many who would take the name of a follower of Christ, but they have little evidence of it when you examine their lives. There's duplicity, there's hypocrisy. Hypocrisy that Jesus himself will go on to take note of, particularly in the lives of the Pharisees, but in general beyond them, there are so many who Jesus says will come to him on the final day and say, Lord, Lord, and he'll have to say, depart from me, I never knew you. So before he ever gets there, he's beginning this sermon by defining for us these fundamental attitudes, fundamental elements of what makes a genuine believer. And as we've outlined in the past several weeks, they're given to us in a kind of a sequential order. They, they build on one another as you move through. And so to understand each beatitude, you really have to understand what's gone before it. And that's as true as ever today for the beatitude that is our focus. We have to understand this sequence to understand where it's headed and where we are. Beginning with the poor in spirit who are spoken, to, uh, spoken of in verse 3, those who clearly see their spiritual condition, their soul is barren, their spirit is hollow, it is desolate, it is empty, it is without value. They come to the place where they see their spiritual bankruptcy, their spiritual deprivation. They are poor in spirit. People might imagine that the doorway into heaven is for those who have a commendable life, who have all kinds of spiritual endowments, all kinds of spiritual achievements. But Jesus says it is actually those who have absolutely nothing to offer to God. They're the ones who enter in. They're the ones who receive the kingdom, the poor in spirit. They're also the ones who, in the second beatitude, mourn. They mourn their spiritual state. They see their spiritual bankruptcy. They cannot rejoice in the barrenness. They cannot, they cannot uh, uh, find comfort in what is essentially an empty soul. They know that they have nothing that could commend them to God. All of their efforts, all of their their sincerest, or they believe the best that they could offer, none of it has done anything to make them any more worthy, any more acceptable, or bring them any closer to God. And they know that, and they feel that. And so they mourn, they grieve, They grieve that they're not only separated from God, they grieve that they're objects of God's wrath because of their spiritual poverty. They're reduced to nothing. And because of all that, there's a kind of meekness that comes over their soul. As Jesus speaks about in the third beatitude, there's nothing of any value in themselves to cling to, and so they want nothing more but to empty themselves of themselves, to empty themselves of all that's worthless, all that is lacking, all that is vain, all that is empty, all that is barren. They just want to be rid of all of that, emptying themselves of themselves, all of it leading to a lack of self-absorption, a lack of self-centeredness, a lack of self-assertion. They have nothing. They know they have nothing, and they have nothing to assert, nothing to offer. They grieve over what's there. 
They wouldn't pass it on to anyone, and it creates a meek attitude, a meek person. A person who has really nothing to offer and nothing to defend. It also creates, because of this, because of this emptiness and because of this void, because of this barrenness, it creates a desire to be filled. Which Jesus says, you will be filled. You'll hunger and thirst for righteousness and you will be filled. You hunger and thirst to have something in the place of all of that emptiness and something in the place of all of that void and all that barrenness. You hunger and thirst and Jesus says you're filled with righteousness. And that righteousness manifests itself in terms, verse 7, of mercy. Blessed are the merciful. In terms of sincerity. Blessed are the pure in heart. And then in verse 9, all of this transforms them into a peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God, the sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. I mean, really, could there be any sweeter words in the context of of our culture and nation. Blessed are the peacemakers. We need peacemakers. Because peace is in short supply. I wish it wasn't the case. I wish we, I wish we, were, we were in a world of peace. I wish there was peace in our nation. I wish there was peace between political parties. I wish there was peace between racial groups. I wish there was peace in families. I wish there was peace in churches. I wish there was peace in marriages. I wish there was peace between uh, parents and children and between siblings. I wish there was peace. I really do. I wish there was peace between friends, between believers. But we know there's not. Sadly, it's not. Peace is in short supply. And it saddens me, as I'm sure it saddens you. There are some, no doubt, who love strife. They love to stir up controversy. They love drama. There are some who sort of wake up looking for something to battle and some fight to have. But for me, I wish there was peace. I wish there was peace like the garden when God first established the heavens and the earth. I wish there was peace like there will be in the kingdom when the Prince of Peace returns and establishes His throne on the earth. I wish we had that peace right now, but we don't. So as much as ever, we need peacemakers. Those who love peace, those who work towards peace. These are the ones Jesus says are blessed. They're obviously blessed in their own hearts by obedience to Christ. They're blessed. They bring blessings to the people around them because they are peacemakers. And the blessings don't come through battle and through discord. They don't come through strife and through fighting. That's not the way that they bring blessing. That's not the way they find blessing. The way they find blessing is by being a peacemaker. And the blessing is that they're immediately identified as God's children. Now, as I said, this beatitude is absolutely dependent on everything that's gone before it. Being a genuine peacemaker doesn't just happen. It's not just something that that comes naturally. None of these beatitudes are the result of natural-born qualities. None of them are are, uh, a part of a particular personality set. Every one of them is the fruit of the Spirit. And as we'll see as we move through this morning... Peacemaking is as closely connected to all of these other Beatitudes, so uh, intimately dependent on them, the qualities of meekness and righteousness and mercy and purity, all of those things that Jesus has already articulated, which are, are works of the Spirit, every one of them is necessary to be a peacemaker. 
And Jesus doesn't necessarily unpack all of that connection for us here. He just declares the, that, that, that you're in a blessed state if you have these qualities. In fact, he, he really doesn't even outline for us the process of what makes you a peacemaker. He just says you're blessed if you are a peacemaker. But we want to unpack this a little bit. Uh, like we have in weeks past, we want to take some time and expound this a little bit by taking a look at what the Scripture says about peacemaking, trying to understand why it is that we are so blessed and what it is that makes us so identifiable as the children of God, trying to unpack what the process is even to making peace. And so we'll do that the same way we have in weeks past. We'll, we'll take a little time to expound what peacemaking is, and then we'll take a few moments to maybe look at an example of a peacemaker. But let's begin with an exposition of peacemaking, an exposition of peacemaking. And we can begin by pointing out that a peacemaker is not the same as a peace lover. A peacemaker is not the same as a peacekeeper even. What Jesus is talking about here should not be confused with that natural inclination that you find in so many people to avoid conflict, to just go along with the status quo or go along with the crowd to be, to be uh, recognized as someone who conforms or whatever it might be. It's not the person who is naturally easygoing. It's not the person who is considered by maybe most people to be nice. It's not any of that stuff. And that is not what Jesus is talking about. Peacemakers are not necessarily the same as peace lovers. We know that because later on in Matthew 10, Jesus will actually tell us in chapter 10, verse 34, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. I came to set a father against his children and a mother against those that she bore. I came to set a husband against a wife and brother and sister against one another. We understand that peacemaking does not always mean the keeping of the peace. And sometimes a, a peacemaker has to be someone who may upset the peace, someone who may actually run contrary to it because they are standing for God's gospel. They represent the gospel of Christ. So few people understand what makes for peace. In fact, many people in their best efforts are not making peace. They are appeasing. They are pleasing. They're presenting themselves to a watching world or to others hoping for applause because of their general niceness. But peacemaking is not simply the avoidance of conflict. Because so often when you just avoid the issues, they go under the surface. doesn't matter what it is or who the parties are or what the issue is. They go under the surface on both sides. They go underground, they simmer, they fester until they break out again at some latter point. And none of that really establishes peace. Peacemaking is so much more robust than that. Peacemaking is not someone who just avoids conflict. Someone who settles for superficial appeasement. Peacemaking comes from people who understand how to diffuse. It comes from people who understand how to get at the heart of a conflict and to deal with it from the heart. And all of this, as I said, flows out of the previous Beatitudes that Jesus has already given. In other words, a peacemaker or peacemaking is the byproduct of meekness and mercy and righteousness and purity that Jesus has already been talking about. And if that connection is not explicit in Jesus' Beatitudes, it is made explicit for us by Jesus' half-brother, James. In James chapter 3, in fact, turn with me over there to James 3, verse 17, 
where James describes for us what he calls a wisdom that is from above, that is first pure, blessed are the pure in heart, then peaceable, blessed are the peacemakers, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, blessed are the merciful, good fruits and impartial and insincere, and a harvest of righteousness, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. You see it all here, the qualities that Jesus has been describing, the Beatitudes, the mercy, the purity, the, the sincerity, the righteousness, the peacemaking. All of this James is bringing together for us and helping us to understand peacemaking. He had begun this little section back in verse 13 where he was dealing with wisdom from above. He asked, who is it? Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Blessed are the meek. There were those that James is dealing with who were presenting themselves as wise. They were presenting themselves as counselors, as advisors, as the people with answers. They were presenting themselves as teachers. In fact, he opened up the chapter by warning them, let not many of you become teachers. Understanding that if you present yourself as a teacher, if you present yourself as having wisdom, there's going to be a judgment. And it's going to be a strict judgment. If you're the one with all the answers, you need to understand there's going to be a strict judgment against you. And so if you are spouting wisdom, you better make sure it's the right kind of wisdom. You better make sure that it's the right kind of teaching. He had already rebuked them back in verse 9 for their bitter speech. He says in verse 9 that their tongue, with their tongue, they were trying on one hand to bless our Lord and Father and with the, at the same time with their tongue curse people who are made in the likeness of God. And James is telling them that's not a teacher. That's not wisdom that comes down from above. That's not the wisdom that comes from God. You present yourself as someone who's a counselor and someone who's a guide and everything you're doing is actually undermining, tearing down people. And so by your cursing and by your bitterness, you're exposing the fact that you shouldn't be presenting yourself as a teacher, he says. Godly wisdom isn't demonstrated that way. You want to know where godly wisdom is demonstrated, he says? You want to know how to find true, sound, godly wisdom? The wise person, the person with true understanding, he says, is characterized by a certain kind of meek behavior. They are, in other words, they're not self-important. They're not self-promoting. They're not going out there and making everything about themselves. They're not asserting themselves. None of that stuff. And consequently, because of this meekness, they're not a person who is always taking offense at everything. They're not offended when they're overlooked. They're not offended when they're sidelined. They're not offended when their opinion or their insight is not solicited. They're not, it's not about them. There's a meekness about them. They don't go on the attack. They don't go run off and pout whenever their interests are not served because they're characterized by meekness. That one principle immediately gives you tremendous insight into peacemaking. So James is saying, you, you think you're wise, You think that you actually have solutions. You think you actually have answers. You think you're wise. You think you're a teacher. Well, let me look at your life. Let me see. Can you bear wrongs without responding with cursing and bitterness? Can you bear wrongs and exemplify a love that doesn't seek its own way? You claim to have wisdom, but really, what kind of wisdom is it? 
Is it wisdom that comes down from above or is it wisdom that comes from the earth? And the burden of proof is going to be verified by your life and by your attitude. Look at your life. What do you see? Do you see self-promotion? Do you see arrogance? Do you see uh, uh, ambition? Do you see all of this stuff, self-interest? Or do you see a kind of meek humility, gentleness, kindness, unselfishness? You remember we studied this a few weeks ago when we read that Moses was the meekest person on the face of the earth, it says in Numbers 12. So much so that when he was unjustly attacked by Aaron and Miriam, he didn't even defend himself. That was the evidence of his meekness. This is what James is saying. And then, to help us understand it, he immediately presents it with a contrast. A contrast between this true wisdom and false wisdom. He says in verse 14, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and falsify or be false to the truth. This is the opposite, he says, of the meekness that characterizes true wisdom. If you have this sort of self-promoting, self-centered, self-absorbed interest at your heart, it's not wisdom. James says, if this is what characterizes your life and your conduct, don't boast that you have the wisdom. Don't boast that you have the knowledge. Don't boast that you have the understanding. Stop going around telling people to listen to you. Stop um, uh, spouting off whatever it is from your mouth, the poison that's coming out of it. You're blessing God on one hand, and on the other hand, you're pouring forth all of this worldly mindedness. Stop going around and telling people or writing down or posting or whatever you're doing as if you have wisdom. James says, look, if there is nothing but this selfish ambition and bitter jealousy in your heart, it's in the heart. It's at the level of motive. This is what ultimately is driving, he says, your claims to wisdom. This is ultimately what is driving your opinions. This is ultimately what drives your commentary. It's a certain view of yourself, a sort of desire to be exalted, a sort of desire to be allotted and and applauded and all these other things. It's a promotion of yourself, and it's the opposite of meekness. Remember, meekness is the emptying of self. It's the attitude that flows out of spiritual poverty, spiritual poverty. Mourning, the renunciation of self-promotion and self-absorption. When you do have, or when you don't have that meekness, your counsel and your leadership, it cannot produce peace. In fact, James says in verse 16, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder. It's going to produce disorder. When that kind of wisdom is what's being promoted, when that kind of wisdom is what is uh, informing, when that kind of wisdom is is what is is presented, when so-called leaders and teachers are spouting off things that are really coming from their own self-interest and their own self-absorption, the result of all that stuff is going to be disorder. That's what's going to be left in its wake, a pathway of upheaval and chaos, all kinds of confusion. And it only makes sense because if the leaders are teaching and leading and advising from a place of self-interest, well, guess what the followers are going to learn? They're going to learn and they're going to understand that the way you respond is by way of self-interest. On the contrast, if you have a leader who's standing up and telling people that we have to deny ourselves, that we lay down ourselves, that we empty ourselves of ourselves, 
then the people who are following are going to learn what? They're going to learn that you have to deny yourself, that you have to learn gentleness, that you have to learn meekness. But James says, when you have this jealousy and selfish, selfish ambition at the helm, if that is where your wisdom is coming from, it's going to produce disorder. And not only that, within the context of that disorder, what's going to happen? He says, every vile practice. So you're going to have this kind of chaos and, and, and confusion that's created. And within the confusion and the chaos and the upheaval, when you look into it, what do you find? You find all kinds of vile practices, things that are taking place that are not godly, that don't honor God, don't honor other people. None of it comes from a state of wisdom. None of it comes from a state of peacemaking. It's confusion. It is an environment where sin flourishes because true wisdom is no longer being exemplified. And people are basically learning from their so-called teachers to pursue goals of self-interest. What does godly wisdom look like? Well, James tells us in verse 17, the wisdom that's from above is first pure, then it's peaceable, it's gentle, it's open to reason, it's full of mercy and good fruits, it's impartial, and it's sincere. It's a totally different kind of wisdom. It's a wisdom that isn't sizing everything up for what benefits you or what benefits your particular interest or your particular group or your particular goals or whatever it might be. It is impartial. It is sincere. It is gentle. It is merciful. It is, as we've already said, it's, it's pure. That is to say, it comes from a place of, of moral and spiritual sincerity. At the heart, there's sincerity. And then, with that motive, it's peaceable. It does things which actually promote peace. It lays aside self-interest that get in the way of peace. And then it's gentle and open to reason and full of mercy. Blessed are the merciful. It is impartial. It's not about dividing up into different groups and factions and sides. And then it sows seeds of righteousness behind it. Blessed are the righteous, Jesus says, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And it's all right there. I mean, these are the foundations of peacemaking. James says wisdom, wisdom is sown in peace by those who make peace. You hang around them long enough. You hang around these peacemakers a full season. You don't see it necessarily right away. It's not like you stick a seed in the ground and tomorrow a whole bush pops up. But you stick around for a full season of planting and harvesting. You stay under the cycle of their wisdom and their counsel and see what it produces. James says it produces peaceful lives, peaceful homes, peaceful Churches, peaceful communities, a, 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 a wisdom that is from above is sown in peace by those who make peace. And just in case you haven't really understood what James is saying, he presses the point. The next verse, in chapter 4, verse 1, he presses it even further. What causes quarrels and fights? Among you, Where does it come from? Why do you find yourself in the midst of a quarrel, in the midst of a fight? You ask most people, they will say, well, it's because of him or her or them or that. They're the cause. I got an explanation and they're the cause. Well, 
James says it's not them. It's you. Is it not this? Your passions, your desires raging war within you. Someone's treated you ill. Someone's treated you unjustly. Someone has done you wrong. It's not new. It's happened to tons of other people. But the reason you're fighting is not because something was done wrong to you. The reason you're fighting is you're fighting back. It's what's in your heart. Wishes, aspirations, desires, expectations that are not being met. And so the person who stands in your way, that stands in the way of your desire, they have to be overcome. They have to be beaten down. They have to be overpowered. They have to be eliminated. The person who stands in the way of your possession, the person who stands in the way of your comfort and your ease, the person who stands in the way of your material profit, your reputation, they must surrender to your desire or suffer the consequences. Whatever it is, All those desires, whatever it is, it basically amounts to self-interest. doesn't matter what the object is, the activity is, the common denominator is your self-interest. Folks, this is the biblical view of conflict. This is the biblical view of conflict. Jesus himself taught it in Matthew 15, 19, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander, malice. You can add all that stuff to it. It doesn't really matter what form it takes. The world believes that all that stuff, all that stuff comes from the outside. They think it comes from the circumstances. They think it comes from the environment. They think it comes from this person or that person or whatever it might be. And the Bible turns around and says, no, it actually comes from you. It comes from what is warring inside of your heart. You can't have what you desire. Your expectations are not being met. And so you fight and you quarrel. And so if you just get rid of the expectations and you just get rid of the desires, then the fighting and the quarreling goes away. There's really nothing to fight about anymore. You say, but mommy, you don't understand. What, the, what that person did was wrong. What they did was wrong. It was immoral. They slandered me. They lied about me. They took something from me or whatever it might be. But James says, if you just set aside your desire, you can be at peace. The issue isn't them, it's you. The reason you retaliate is because of you. You say, well... Uh, no, I mean, if you just understood, if you just understood the way they treated me, the what they did to me, it, it, let me tell you all the details. Let me write it all out for you. Let me give you every sordid sort of detail and you'll understand why my anger is justified. And along the way, I'm going to smear their character and drag their name through the mud so that you can really, really understand just what a slimy person they are. James doesn't account for any of that. The real reason that you're fighting and retaliating is what lies in your own heart. And then he adds a very important detail to help reorient your focus when you're in conflict right there at the end of verse 2. You do not have because you do not ask. You basically have given yourself over to a worldview. You've given yourself over to a worldview where the things that you're seeking and the things that you are desiring are now almost completely up to your own scheming and your own conspiring and your own backbiting and your own attacks. 
And you've forgotten that every good and every perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or turning. So very few Christians get this, and it's demonstrated in the way that they respond to conflict. Because they basically respond as if God doesn't exist. You really can't tell any difference between their response and the response of the world. The world responds that way because they don't believe in God. They don't look at God as an answer. They don't think God is there, and so they don't think God's going to do anything. But James is telling you as a Christian, if you want a Christian response, then your response to conflict ought to be fundamentally rooted and grounded in the understanding of God's providence and God's goodness and God's power. You have a low view of God, and your response to conflict directly reflects your lack of faith in God. You might see the world responding with a retaliation and discord and division and fighting and all the fruits of the, of the flesh, and you would expect them to respond that way because their only hope is themselves. But you should not respond in that way. That is not wisdom that comes down from above. That is wisdom from the world. Because we have faith in a God who is watching over us. This is why Paul says in Romans 12, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. He goes on in the next verse, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. So you say, yeah, but, but they, they can't be allowed to get away with this. It's so wrong what they did. They just can't be allowed to get away with this. Guess what? They won't. God is telling you they will not be allowed to get away with this. He will avenge And it may not be on your timetable and your time frame. It actually may not even be in your lifetime. That's not the promise that he makes to you. But the promise that he makes to you is that he will right every wrong. He will will act with justice against every sin and malfeasance. He will avenge. And he might do it in this life and he might do it at the judgment seat, but he will do it. And your job is to live peaceably and honorably in the sight of all men and leave all that stuff into God's hands. That's the wisdom that comes down from above. That's where meekness and mercy and peaceableness and gentleness and all of that stuff sort of rises to the surface. So far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. There might be conflict. There might be stuff that's out of your hand. People might hate you, despise you, ridicule you. But don't let the reason be you. Let it be the gospel. Don't let it be you. Now, James has pieced all this together for us, helping us to see how these beatitudes produce peacemaking and expounding that. Jesus will eventually get to this stuff. Even later in the Sermon on the Mount, we read when he's talking about people judging and condemning one another, he says, first, take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So, in other words, if you want to deal with an issue in conflict, you begin with your own heart. You begin with the issues that are in your own spirit, your own life. You deal with those issues. And once you've done all that, then then you might be able to deal with the speck, the relative speck that's in your brother's eye. That's peacemaking. That's peacemaking. James 1.9, he'd already 
talked about this a little bit when he says, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man never produces the righteousness of God. It's not going to get you where you want to go. It's not going to produce the righteousness of God. Peacemaking process doesn't move through the anger of men or women or whatever. What does it involve? Well, it involves being quick to hear, slow to speak, holding your tongue, realizing that in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. It involves being quick to hear, which we just know from the general principles of Scripture. It involves you know, listening to those that you might be upset with, trying to gather and gain an understanding of their perspective and their, the complexities of their life and what they're battling with. We understand that to answer a matter before you know it is foolish and, and shameful to you. But James is particularly focused on listening to the Word of God because he says in the next verse that you and I need to receive the implanted Word. So what he's saying is that whenever you move into a conflict, what you need to do is you need to frame it in a biblical way. You need to frame it in a theological way. Frame it up in the context of God's Word and in God's providence and in God's priorities. You, you, you frame it up with an attentive ear to what God has to say. In other words, when you find yourself in a situation of conflict, it's not about your priorities, and it's not about your uh, interest or whatever it is, it's about God's interest. It's about the interest of grace and the gospel and providence and the church and the glory of God, and you're asking yourselves, what are the implications for me and this person that I'm battling with? You do all that, and you're ready to be a peacemaker. I really wish we had time to just unpack all of this because there's so much that goes into peacemaking, but we have the essentials right here given to us, a foundation for peacemaking. Purity in your heart, mercy in your spirit, and a meek soul. So with all that, having sort of expounded a little bit on peacemaking, let's ask ourselves, I mean, does anyone really do that? I mean, really? Does anyone just lay aside their self-interest? Kind of put aside all that they're after? Kind of put up with whatever's going on? Does anyone really ever do that? Well, yes, they do. I mean, obviously, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, exemplified this himself, having been completely maligned unjustly. Peter says he gave us an example to follow. But he's an example of all the Beatitudes, so I wanted to see if we could find a strictly human example, and I think we have one in the book of 1 Samuel. You can turn with me over there to 1 Samuel. I want to talk a little bit about David because David provides an example of just this kind of a peaceful heart, a peacemaking heart. You remember David had been anointed the king of Israel. He was the king by God's selection. And he was the king because Saul had disqualified himself. Saul had not only grossly disobeyed God in his conflict with the Amalekites, but he actually tried to present himself as the priest before the nation and presented false worship before the people. And for all of these, for all of these um, uh, reasons of his failed leadership, God declares in 1 Samuel 15 that he has rejected Saul, that he no longer sees Saul as the king. And he sends Samuel in chapter 16 to go and anoint this young man named David, who wasn't even considered within his own family as having much potential. In fact, they go to the house of David's father, Jesse, and, and Jesse marches all of the other children in front of Samuel because he assumes that Samuel would choose one of those other children, and it's the youngest child 
the baby in the family. David, who is ultimately the one that God wanted. They have to call him in from the field. He wasn't even brought into the whole ordeal because everyone assumed that he wasn't really worth anything. And they finally bring him in and God says, that's the one. That's the one that I want. And God uh, sends Samuel to anoint him. Now, after that, in chapter 17, the armies of Israel are sort of entrenched in a battle, uh, really both armies sort of cowering away from one another uh, across a valley because there's this giant named Goliath who's out in the middle of the valley challenging anyone to a battle who will take him on and no one's willing to do it until David shows up. And we all know the story. David goes out there with nothing but a sling and a few rocks. And he takes down this enemy that had caused all the armies of Israel to flee. Establishing his reputation as both a warrior and a leader. He comes back into the town and the people are cheering. Saul has killed his thousands, but David is ten thousands. Everyone's rejoicing about David, everyone except for Saul. He's jealous. He's angry. No reflection on what he's done. No reflection on the way that he's dishonored God with his life. No reflection on his own lack of leadership or any of those things. He's just angry. And then all this sort of as it's unfolding, Saul invites David to the palace. And we read in 1 Samuel 18 that the next day a harmful spirit rushed upon Saul from God. And he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre and as he did day by day. And Saul had a spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. So there's some sort of tussle that takes place within the castle, and at least twice Saul tries to pin David through with a spear. I mean, there's no justification for this kind of treatment No justification for this kind of disrespect and anger. It was simply David doing what he did, serving not only his nation, but serving even the king. And everything that Saul desired for himself in terms of the affections of the people, the honor of the people, the following of the people, David was taking for himself and and Saul doesn't like it. It happens again in chapter 19 when we read once again a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house and he had a spear in his hand and David was playing the lyre and and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear but he eluded Saul so that the spear was stuck in the wall and David fled and escaped by night. You remember David's the king, right? You do remember he's been anointed and he knows it. You remember, Saul's already been rejected. This wicked man who has led Israel in wicked pathways. And here he is trying to take the life of the true king. Now you would assume at some point that David would say, you know, enough is enough. I went out and I fought for you. I went out and I defeated your enemy. I've come back. I've played uh, in your house. I've played the liar for you. I've tried to give you comfort and aid. I've had nothing, given nothing but loyalty to you. And by the way, I'm the king. God told me I'm the king. You would think at some point, David will say, you know, that is enough. This is just unjust what you're doing. But he doesn't do that. In fact, from that point, he actually escapes and he goes away as a fugitive for probably uh, maybe up to two years running and hiding and wandering around in the barren wilderness of Israel. And we can pick up the story in in chapter 24. Because we read there in verse 4, Saul returned from following the Philistines, and he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. 
So he's out here and he's hunting for David and he's hunting because he wants to take his life. He wants to eliminate him. Wipe him from the face of the earth. And he takes a moment to go into this cave and we're told there that in the cave were David's men. And they say to him, the men of David said to him, verse 4, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I give your enemy into your hand. You shall do to him as seems good to you. They say, this is, I can't believe this. Here's the man who's actually been trying to hunt you down and kill you. And of all the places that he goes to make himself vulnerable, all the places he goes apart from his army to relieve himself, of all the places he comes to this cave. We read that David arose and stealthily cut a corner off of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he'd cut a corner of Saul's robe. You talk about meekness. That is a meek person right there. He, he just cuts a corner from the guy's robe and it immediately bothers his conscience. He's bothered by this. Verse 6, And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he's the Lord's anointed. I mean, he's not going to do anything. He felt bad he'd even cut a corner from his robe. Verse 7, So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called to Saul. This would have been caves that were dug into the sides of the hills rising above. And so Saul's troops probably would have been down low in the valley. And having already climbed down from the cave and rejoined his troops, David's men emerged They wouldn't be necessarily susceptible to attack from Saul's army, but they would be well within earshot. And David calls down to him. And he says, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there's no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt to take my life. Verse 12, may the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. David had every way he could justify his actions. He had every right that he could claim. He was the anointed king. He had every right to do what he wanted to do, even to to take the life of this man trying to kill God's king. But he knew that if he did it, the whole nation would break out in civil war. And so what does David do? He leaves it. In the hands of the Lord. This is wisdom from above. This isn't earthly wisdom. This is wisdom that comes down from above. Later on, 1 Samuel 26, it happens again. Abishai and David are going along. They find Saul and his troops sleeping. The scripture says sleeping deeply. And Saul's right there on the ground and his spear is literally in the ground right next to his head. And Abishai says, let me go in there. I'll take that spear and it won't even take two jabs. I can do it in one. 
David answers, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him. Or his day will come to die. Or he'll go down in battle and perish or something. But the Lord forbid that I should raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. This is a peacemaker. This is a meek man. This is a man who has no self-interest that is driving him and a right view of God. He's been a fugitive in the wilderness. He's been living out with a sheep in the rough crags of the rocks. He has every right to claim his spot, not just alongside of Saul, but actually above Saul. But he refuses to take things into his own hands. He waits patiently for the Lord to work. This is, this is meekness. And that comes from a peacemaking heart. A proper response to a proper worldview. A proper faith. Obviously the world does not understand this. We don't expect the world to understand this. You begin to articulate something like this, you can expect to be ridiculed. You can expect to be denounced. Jesus himself was denounced. No one understood his message when he was giving it because he was giving the wisdom that comes from above. But it's there. This is the pathway to peacemaking. This is the Beatitudes. This is what Jesus says marks a true disciple. This is how you know a genuine follower of Him. This is how you know those who are walking in His footsteps. That's the heart of a peacemaker. And Jesus says, that's the one who will be identified as a child of God. They're going to be blessed because people are going to recognize they have the characteristics, the unique characteristics as one of God's children. If you're here today and you have been at enmity with God, You've been in a fight, but the fight's with God. You've rebelled against His Word. You've rebelled against His law. You've rebelled against following His commandments. The good news for you is that God's a peacemaker. That it doesn't matter what you've done. He has done what is necessary to make peace. He hasn't sought his own. It's not been about pure self-interest for him. We're told in the book of Philippians that he, his, the mind of Christ is to seek the interest of others above your own. And that's what Christ did. He actually sought your interests by taking the wrath of God on the cross and suffering unjustly for the sake of you so that you the enemy of God can become God's friend he made peace by the blood of his cross and if you're here today and you're willing to confess the poverty of your spirit and mourn over the emptiness of your soul if you're here and you're ready to empty yourself of all of that stuff that has defiled you. You can have peace with God because of the cross. Lord, we're so grateful for peace. We long for it and it so grieves us that we don't have it, not like we'll have it when you return. But in the meantime, make us peacemakers. Make us those who make peace with the wisdom that comes down from above. 
who exemplify that kind of meekness and self-emptying, who deal with the logs in our own eye and deal with the issues in our own heart. Help us, Lord, to follow in the footsteps of our Savior, who Himself gave everything to make peace. Lord, we love Him. I'm so thankful for our Prince of Peace, so ready for Him to return. And in the meantime, may we be identified uniquely as the children of God because we follow His pathway of peace. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.